Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're beginning the ninth strength in our year-long series, intimacy. There are degrees of intimacy in all our relationships, from a passing encounter on the street to a marriage of 50 years. Intimacy rests on a foundation that balances personal autonomy with empathy, kindness, and compassion for others. The greater the intimacy we experience in our relationships, the greater the potential rewards, but also the greater the risks. As you open up and invest in relationships, you get more out of them. But as your life becomes increasingly tied to someone else's, you also inevitably become more exposed and vulnerable. Others can more easily disappoint or hurt you. Balancing those two deep needs, one for intimacy and one for autonomy, can be a real challenge, and it's the focus of today's episode. To help us do that, I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So personally, I'm really looking forward to this material. Yeah. When we were writing the book, Resilient, we often referred to intimacy and next month's theme of courage as being connected. Mm -hmm. They were kind of the relationship chapters, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. And we drew very, very heavily on your 35-ish years of couples counseling and something like that. And to be frank, because of that, I think it's probably some of the best material that we have, at least in my personal opinion. So to kind of get us started, could you explain what you meant by the words intimacy and autonomy in the framework we're using here. Mm-hmm. And related to that, this kind of contradictory idea that by being more autonomous or independent, right. we somehow are able to become more intimate. I'm not sure if that's inherently obvious to most people. So I would like you to kind of explain that. Yes, it's one of the most powerful ideas mm-hmm. in psychology, this mm. notion of two great themes in a human life which could be called various things. For simplicity, they're routinely called autonomy on the one hand, intimacy on the other, or independence, dependence, uh, individuality, community. Mm -hmm. You can see these two major themes. And the question becomes, how do they dance together? How do they work together? So one example of that happens in early childhood, in which children uh, routinely will look back at a caregiver, Mm -hmm. like let's say a mother sitting on a park bench, uh, to make sure that they're being watched carefully. And then based on that sense of a so-called secure base of intimacy with the caregiver, then the three-year-old will launch toward the swing set Mm -hmm. uh, and explore more autonomy. So you can see that's an example of a way in which there's this balance of intimacy and autonomy. And an example of how intimacy, in this case, supports, broadly said, the autonomy, the expression, and the exploration of the world of the child. So these two themes are really, really, really important. And one of the things that we'll explore is how there can be issues with either one. Mm -hmm. There can be issues, on the one hand, with people not fully claiming the pole of autonomy in ways in which they're uncomfortable with full expression of themselves really saying how they feel, taking a stand, um, including taking a stand in terms of what they want that could be divergent from what other people want. Another example of really moving into autonomy is uh, a willingness to break out of relationships that are just not good for you, Mm -hmm. rather than feeling like you're stuck in some gravitational field and you've got to keep orbiting that massive planet and can Mm -hmm. never really move into escape velocity and break free. Or in a different example, I've known people and who limits self-assertiveness out of a fear that others won't like her or that it'll make them mad. Sure. I mean, I think that that's an experience that many people, honestly, yeah. including myself, yeah. have had where you kind of limit your own behavior to a certain extent out of regard for others. Um, 
the obvious rejoinder being that there's a certain amount of that. That's just what people do in a polite society. And it's a perfectly normal thing, which kind of it suggests what you're pointing to here, which is that it's about maintaining a balance between exactly. these two things. Yeah. In other words, a situation where let's suppose that person A is in a setting like a hospital setting mm-hmm. where they're really needing to advocate for their child or their aging parent. And I'm speaking from some experience there. So you're the person who's A, and to really advocate for this person you care about, uh, you need to be assertive and direct and blunt. You need to call others sometimes on the carpet. You need to point out that what they promised was not delivered. Yet to do that, which is virtuous in your role to do and fully appropriate to do, to do that, sometimes that just makes other people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And if a person, if person A is not willing to tolerate the experience that others are being uncomfortable, then person A will tend to inhibit their appropriate assertiveness mm. in ways that are not good for them and often not good for those that they're you know, trying to advocate for. Mm-hmm. Those are multiple examples of what I mean by appropriate autonomy in the frame of a relationship. Okay, great. So you gave an example there of how intimacy can support autonomy and with the child kind of looking back over its shoulder at the parent. And a second example of how you need to sometimes maintain your autonomy in your dealings with others. That makes sense from a personal perspective of maintaining autonomy. I want to maintain my autonomy to express myself and get what I want. But how does autonomy in that sense uh, forward intimacy? How does it allow you to be more intimate with others just because you're being more autonomous. Yeah, exactly. It does so in multiple ways. So Mm. first of all, to be able to really open to another person, especially empathically, so that you are really willing to be affected by them, if you don't have an autonomous core inside, some place of stability inside, whether you imagine it as the deep deep roots of a tree Mm -hmm. through which the wind of the other person blows, Or if you imagine that you're holding on to a buoy in stormy seas and the waves come through, but you're holding on to the buoy and rising and falling with the waves. If you don't have that that anchor inside, that refuge inside, then you get so overwhelmed by the feelings of other people that you can't sustain relatedness to them. Mm -hmm. You're flooded. So in that key way, autonomy, in the sense that I'm meaning it here, is an autonomous core in which you can regulate your own interior autonomously and you regulate how you see things, no matter how forceful other people are being. In other words, let's suppose you're listening to someone who's really mad about something. Mm -hmm. They're intense, they're angry, and they're upset, and maybe you're part of what they're upset about, and maybe there's some accusations flying around, Mm -hmm. and they have strong opinions. Mm -hmm. If you can't internally know that you reserve your own judgment, it's hard to join with them. Yeah, you, yeah, you just, totally. burr, and you mm-hmm. put up a big wall. You mm-hmm. just can't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really wild. It's sort of the Aikido of relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I think that example makes a lot of sense, how maintaining your own sense of self, including that idea about agreement and sort mm-hmm. of a problematic moment with somebody else. We've talked about this a little bit before in previous episodes, how just because you say, wow, I'm expressing empathy for you, I'm joining with, I get where you're coming from, does not mean inherently that you're also conceding to deep fault. It could mean that you're doing that, but it doesn't mean that inherently. And and maintaining that sense of, no, this is my own true position, can really help you join with and show empathy for somebody else, which you're speaking to here. Yeah. Deep down inside, I know I'm not going to be bold, bold over by them. Therefore, I can be much more open to that other person. Okay, great. So can I give you one more example? Another reason why 
autonomy supports intimacy. In a long-term important relationship, if you don't assert your needs mm -hmm. autonomously in ways that are appropriate and necessary, let's suppose, for getting those needs met in the relationship, over time, you're not getting what you need out of the relationship. You're not feeling happy in the relationship. Mm -hmm. You're maybe building up a backlog of complaints about the relationship, all of which eat away at the potential intimacy in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's through, in this example, being autonomous and assertive as appropriate for your own sake actually helps relationships be really good for you mm -hmm. so that you're going to want to stay in them. Makes total sense. So those are some good examples of kind of negative entanglement when we're too intimate without that sense of kind of an autonomous core. One of the questions that arose in my mind when I started interacting with this material more yeah. is kind of this sense of the difference between relationship style and objective right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Here's what I mean by that, is that yeah. there's a range of outcomes in couples, in perfectly healthy couples. And you see this ranging from people who've been dating for a week to people who've been married for 20 years, where some couples are just more intimate than others and more expressive about that intimacy than others are, whether that's physically expressive or they go everywhere together, do everything together, and so on. On the other hand, some couples naturally very autonomous. They're both kind of doing their own thing most of the time. Given that this spectrum exists, how do you kind of know when you're just in the realm of healthy variation versus the realm of unhealthy, too intimate, or too autonomous? Right. It's a great question for mm -hmm. us. It's interesting that the root of the answer to that question has to do with autonomy. Hmm. In other words, the fundamental answer to your question is, is there a freedom inside too? Mm -hmm. Do you feel a choice about whether your style is more left or more right? I don't mean that politically. Or are you doing that because you're succumbing to external pressures or because you're being controlled by the internal puppet master mm -hmm. that was constructed when you were young? Mm. That's really beautifully said. and. I think that that really rang true for me kind of in that moment. To pick up on something that you said there, you made a reference to the systems that we create in childhood mm. or that are kind of built in our relationships with others over time. Yeah. Is there sort of a natural biological difference between people in terms of their point on this spectrum? Or is that really more a nurture question than a nature question? Fundamentally wonderful question. So first of all, temperamentally, mm -hmm. um, Stable temperamental differences can be discerned certainly in two and three year olds, mm. and generally as well, even in newborns, mm. including reactivity to stimuli uh, of various kinds, capacity to be soothed, and seemingly desire for contact. There are biological differences in what could be called social sensitivity, or a, a related one is extroversion, introversion. So I think that's true. And I think. For example, some kids are really hungry for social contact, and they're very sensitive to what happens in the relational field. On the other hand, other kids, I put myself in the category, are quite content with their own company mm. uh, and enjoy others, but are really fine not to be with others, and aren't totally rattled. They're not tightly coupled to what's going on with other people. Mm. And so there is that natural variation. Then we have culture and personal history. I'm generalizing. In America, we see East Coast, West Coast styles. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my good friends grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Southern California. 
We have different relation, interpersonal styles. He's kind of provocative and jokey and aggressive. I'm sort of mellow, SoCal, chilled out, and it's just different styles. So yeah, you're exactly right. The question is, are you muzzled? Are mm. you being muzzled by the learning that you acquired in childhood or previously in adulthood that may have made sense at that time, mm. but which today uh, is like an invisible, it's like an invisible mask or gag mm. even in your important relationships today. Could you give an example of that? Yeah. There are many common examples of ways in which people are not free inside themselves, or they're not at choice, they're not autonomous inside themselves in terms of what they express to other people. For example, classically, to generalize, women tend to be socialized against the expression of anger. Hmm. So there tends to be an internalized inhibition against the expression of real anger, forceful anger. On the other hand, men, to generalize, tend to be socialized as boys and men, not to express hurt. Hmm or a sense of uh, woundedness. And so then we tend to have men, to generalize as adults, who have a hard time really acknowledging how their feelings were hurt, or they felt left out uh, in a certain kind of situation. Those are pretty common examples. I'll give you another one that was really striking to me. I'll give you two, actually. First was that it was impossible for me to say no to my parents. Hmm even well into my mid-20s. And I remember this moment. I was staying in an apartment where I lived, and I was talking with my dad, and I knew I had to say no. And it was just impossible to say that word no mm -hmm. to him, even about a trivial thing, like, mm -hmm. no, I don't want to go on that trip, or just, no, I use other words. I just would never say no, yeah. no, dad. And I made myself say it. And wonderfully, the heavens did not burst apart. I, nothing rained down upon me. No, nothing terrible happened. Uh, my dad still loved me. He just didn't even notice that I'd said he no. Was like, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Sure, right. Rick. I was 25 or something. But I just think about it. I had been doing hardcore personal growth stuff for seven, eight years by that point mm. before I was finally able to remove that particular invisible gag or muzzle on my mouth. That's an example of inhibition on self-expression. And a previous example, which is also really interesting for me, I lived in Finland for a year when I was a junior in high school, age 14 to 15, and um, I uh, fell in love with an older woman. Hmm. She was 17 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> real Romeo and Juliet story up in here. It was. It was. It was a real, and it was intense. It was real. And mm -hmm. I can pull up the memory of what I felt then. It was completely sure. mature love, and it was incredible breakthrough for me. And enormously important. And I think it's worth noting that you were, as you've mentioned in the past on this podcast, not the most emotionally expressive oh, child no. on the planet. Yeah. I was totally squeezed mm -hmm. up. And, and so it was an incredible breakthrough for yeah. me. And I came to know, to your point there, that actually I loved her and mm -hmm. I needed to say I love you. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified to say I love you. I was so inhibited around it. It was not something that was said in my family as of when I was young, and I didn't know how she would react. And really, looking back at the moment when I kind of set it up, we went out on a walk and looked out over the city where we lived, and she knew I wanted to say something, mm -hmm. and I just sat there for 10 or 20 minutes squirming. 
And finally I got it out. And looking back, it was one of the bravest things I've ever done. Mm. Took the one of the highest levels of courage I've ever done to push through my incredible fear about saying, I love you. So that's another example of inhibited self-expression. And these are consequences of things that happen to us? Or like, where does these inhibitions come from? Yeah, we learn them. If you you spend any time with little children, which I have a lot of background there, and I Mm -hmm. love little kids, you you go to the baby nursery three days old, and these kids are just expressing, right? Mm -hmm. And you get a one-year-old, and they express a lot, like Mm -hmm. kids on airplanes. They express. That's really natural. And then we learn uh, to regulate our expression in appropriate ways. So it goes back to that question, are you free inside mm-hmm. to choose an appropriate response? Yeah. It's interesting. I th- there was this Zen master who was asked on his deathbed what he had learned uh, from a life of practice. Mm. And, he's, and he th- reflected for a while and he said, uh, how, to ma- how to offer an appropriate response. Mm. But just think about that. Someone who's on the verge of enlightenment and the thing they've most learned in this life is how to be appropriate. It's actually a profound comment. So there's a place for being appropriate. But what also happens, though, lots and lots of times, children internalize rules or literally uh, forms of armor in the musculoskeletal uh, framework of the body, including in the connective tissue, Mm. that just thwarts them from expressing themselves. I felt like I had a a valve in my throat. I knew what I felt. When mm, I was a kid, mm-hmm. late teens say, but there was a valve in my throat that just constricted yeah. it, just wouldn't let it flow. And that was acquired. I, that's not innate. I wasn't born with that valve in my throat. I totally empathize with that. And I think that most, Ruh-roh. if not all, hopefully well, not no, too I mean, much. <laughs> no, I don't mean it like a repressed <laughs> way. But I think that most, if not all, of the people listening to this podcast yeah. have had the experience where something happens and they get a emotional uprising. They get a feeling, a sensation, and maybe an urge associated Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. sensation, whether it's the urge to say no, or the urge to go to the party, or the urge to not go to the party, whatever it might be. And there's something, a physical sensation inside of the body of of stopping and blocking and holding and pushing back down Mm -hmm. in an environment where it really is appropriate, it really is okay to say the thing. That is one of these examples of that kind of internalized oppression that you're talking about. Mm We spoke pretty extensively on the episode on secure and insecure attachment Mm. about some of the ways that these forms of invisible control can kind of appear and manifest in our lives. As an aside, it's actually one of our most listened to episodes. So if you haven't heard it, I would strongly recommend that you go back and give it a listen. I think there's a lot of good material in there that relates directly to this topic. To kind of stay focused in this episode, let's kind of keep our focus on someone who feels more swept up. Mm -hmm. in things and has a hard time maintaining that sense of individuality. So what can we do, practically speaking, understanding that history has a heavy hand here to strengthen kind of that sense of me instead of we? Yeah. On reflection for us, the frame here for me and my experience with people, so Mm. I've, I've really worked with hundreds and hundreds of people really intimately. So, you know, my sample size is fairly large. Mm -hmm. And when I really look out at that sample size, when I look back over my career in a sense, I think we tend to believe that people have issues with intimacy. Mm. And actually, in my experience, it's much more common to have issues with autonomy. Mm. And often what look like issues with intimacy are at bottom issues with autonomy. For example, 
couple comes into the office or you have a relationship, A and B, and A says, B, you are too distant. Mm. You are cold. You are unfeeling. When I tell you how I feel, when I get upset about it, something, you withdraw. You obviously, B, have a problem with intimacy. Mm. And uh, B often sort of accepts that accusation. Gosh, mm. I guess I have a problem with intimacy. But really, when you look closely, you can discover that what happens is A starts being intense or starts asking for something, and B doesn't have enough autonomy to avoid feeling mm. by the wants of, let's say, their partner. B gets really upset that A is upset. And within a second or two, B starts withdrawing to manage the upset inside B that's due to being too open to A. So B looks closed, cold, Spock-like, and withdrawn. But the source of that is actually that B is too wide open and is too just blown out of the water by just about anything mm. of any significance, uh, rippling their way from their partner A. So if we want to really help B get closer to A, we have to help B become more autonomous, more mm -hmm. comfortable. Now, sometimes B is just withdrawn or cold or yeah, uncaring absolutely. or mean or mm -hmm. fine. But often if, if this hypothesis actually does apply in a particular situation, it's a wonderful way to reframe what's happening that's not accusatory. In mm -hmm. other words, to put it really bluntly, say to A, A, it's not that your partner doesn't care about you. It's that your partner cares so much about you, that your partner just gets lost in the ocean of how you feel about things. Mm -hmm. And so paradoxically, we're going to help your partner become more independent so that your partner can become more related to you. Yeah. Can I give you another example? Yeah. Many, many, many people have a hard time sustaining effort toward a meaningful goal mm -hmm. without constantly referring to an internalized audience mm. of critics. And I love the line from Brene Brown. She says, write for your fans, not for your critics. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways in which, and I know this very, very well, we use the wonderful capacities of the midline cortex to simulate and imagine different scenarios in the future. We engage in what people sometimes call mental time travel into the future, affective forecasting. We run different scenarios. So internally, we imagine, okay, if I pursue this goal, like I want to express myself in some important way. I want to start a business or I want to pursue a certain direction. But then I imagine how others will react to mm, it mm -hmm. in a way that's not free mm. and autonomous. Mm -hmm. I overreact to my anticipation of the overreactions of others mm. and then muzzle myself or swerve or don't get up off the couch to take action. Mm -hmm. And that's a really big issue for a lot of people. And it's quite profound to imagine moving through life without any reference to an internalized audience. Mm. And in a way, as long as what you are doing is wholesome and appropriate and you're taking the high road and so forth, with doing what you do without reference to others. There's a fundamental approach in psychology called object relations. It mm -hmm. has to do with this notion of self and world, self and object. And can people imagine moving through their day without object referencing? In other words, without doing what you do based on a calculation about how others will respond beyond sure. what is reasonably appropriate to be a good person or skillful with other people. So you're being driven by your internal experience distinct from other people's experience of you. Yeah. 
you're individuated to mm-hmm. use Jung's language or differentiated. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting just to watch your own mind. How often as you sort of move along in daily activities, mm-hmm. you do it with this imagined audience or imagined Absolutely, relation. yeah. Yeah. And so that's useful sometimes just to imagine, okay, well, how mm-hmm. will it go if I say mm-hmm. X instead of Y? Sure. Yeah, X will go better. I better say X. That's appropriate. But to feel at all hemmed in mm-hmm. or held down mm-hmm. or held back by that internalized other, that's an indicator of not enough autonomy. Mm-hmm. So your first suggestion to kind of help improve autonomousness, to sum that up, is <laughs> Aut- to... Autonomity. Ad- ad- autonomity, <laughs> autonomousness. I'm not, I'm honestly not really totally sure what the correct uh, grammaring of that is. So my apologies. I'm sure I will have many friends that teach me on Facebook about this. <laughs> so the first suggestion would be to kind of focus on your own experience. Okay. Is that more, that's more or less correct? Yeah, if we're if we're talking here on the how to, yeah. So first, how to become more mindful of your own interior mm-hmm. in its own right, mm-hmm. independent of what's happening around you, and as much as you can, independent of any feeling that I have to appease some kind of internal critic. Another thing is, it's really useful actually when you're being really wide open empathically. You can feel kind of flooded, mm. but as a little trick. If you pay attention to the internal sensations of breathing, Mm. that will increase the prominence of the internal experience of your body, Mm -hmm. which is the foundation for the feeling of being an autonomous self. Mm. So because it's actually through the internal sense of the body that the infant and toddler then preschooler really builds up a sense of me amidst we. And so if you go back down in terms of your own personal history to really tune into your body, which also means in a sense you're going back in time in Mm -hmm. terms of biological evolution to really go into ancient internal interoceptive sensing systems. If you do that, it really helps you establish a very stable sense of me in the middle of we. Okay, so after focusing on your own experience and tuning into the body in that way, Is there another recommendation that you would give? There's a great method that's embedded in the proverb, fences make for good neighbors. Mm -hmm. And I want to give two kinds of examples in which fences, as it were, between us and others are really useful. One example is a situation in which another person is being really pushy, Mm. inappropriate, or maybe they're getting mad at you way out of proportion to what really, really happened. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of situation, it's very useful to have a sense of a fence or a distinction between you and that other person. Mm -hmm. Another example is one in which that's actually really tough for a lot of people, including uh, parents with adult kids, in which someone you love, whether it's your child or maybe a parent or a dear friend, is going down a road that is really alarming to you. You Mm -hmm. You really feel bad about it. Uh, Maybe you're helpless to do anything about it. Maybe they've got a health issue, or maybe they're just not willing to take your excellent advice. And in fact, offering your advice makes things worse. Right there, Mm -hmm. being able to establish a boundary between you and the other person is really useful. Two big suggestions for doing that. One has to do with simply visualizing um, a little fence between you and others. Mm -hmm. The fence may take the form of a line on the ground, like a line in the sand or a painted line, you can imagine that. You might imagine a picket fence. Uh, You might imagine actually a wall of very, very thick glass. 
you're aware of that other person, but they're on the other side mm. of that boundary. And you can even imagine that the other person is on the other side of a fence far, far, far away. Mm -hmm. These methods are actually really quite helpful. Then last, in addition to that imagined boundary, there is a place for having perspective that the causes streaming through the other person's life to make this moment what it is overlap somewhat with the causes streaming through your life to make this moment what it is for you, but those streams are fundamentally distinct from each other. And this starts out kind of conceptual and cosmic, but it actually, over time, as you take in the good of this felt realization about the nature of things, you are able increasingly to be at peace with the ripples moving right next to you. It's a different version here of the balance that I believe we've talked about and we'll talk about again of compassion where there's an openness to the other person with equanimity. Mm -hmm. You are not disturbed in the core of your being by the waves passing by you. Yeah, this is perhaps a little bit more appropriate for the next chapter that we end up covering in about a month, which is going to be courage. But I've, I've also found it useful for issues around intimacy or when you're going to have kind of a tricky conversation with somebody mm -hmm. else yeah. or when somebody brings a, a thing to you where I find it very easy to let my kind of sense of self-worth be impacted by what somebody else is bringing to me in the moment. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of helps me maintain that sense of autonomy is remembering times when something good happened mm -hmm. and somebody thought that I was really great about something or an experience where somebody really went out of their way to say, yeah, you really handled that really well or oh, thanks for listening to me or whatever it is. And kind of calling on that sort of, um, to steal a phrase that you used some time ago, that kind of caring committee mm. inside the mind yeah. uh, really has helped me kind of ground myself in autonomy in the midst of a potentially dangerous intimacy moment. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. In effect, you're drawing on intimacy, mm -hmm. uh, the internalization of experiences of intimacy that have formed mm -hmm. your caring committee. Yeah, absolutely. You're drawing on intimacy there. To be able to be more autonomous. I think that's very cool. Yeah, no, I think that's really kind of accurate because for me at least, it's sort of a more kind of positive descriptor rather than a negative descriptor. It can be really useful to imagine that fence. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I find that it's more helpful to imagine the times where the intimate moment went well. Yeah. And kind of recall those and, and remember the the times where it felt good yeah. to sort of step into the fire in that way. Absolutely. You're you're actually reminding me of a third thing people can mm -hmm. do inside themselves yeah. to build up autonomy which is to actually assert your autonomy inside your own mind, literally by saying things like, I don't have to agree with you, mm, inside mm -hmm. your own mind. It may be unsafe to say it out loud, sure. but inside your own mind, you can remind yourself, I actually don't need to agree with you, mm -hmm. or I don't need to give in right now. Mm -hmm. I can go away and think about this without the pressure of you coming at me. Or another one is, I don't have to give you what you want. Mm. If you want to observe any kind of uh, difficulty with autonomy, say those phrases inside your own mind mm. or say them out loud and then watch your emotional reactions to them. Yeah, that's a great point. It's quite stirring. Or another uh, thing you could say inside your own mind is just because you're upset doesn't necessarily mean it was my fault. Mm. Doesn't mm. necessarily mean I did something wrong. Just because you're mad at me doesn't necessarily mean I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you assert that to yourself, it creates kind of a room in which you can then breathe 
and mm-hmm. look around and consider what you really think is wise and appropriate to do. Yeah. And I'll give you a weird kind of different example of this. So again, in my office, uh, couples A and B. So let's say A is upset about something. And then what B does is very quickly assume, oh, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, you think it's my fault. Mm. And then what B does, often in a kind of script that I've seen so many times, is B is really uncomfortable with the experience that they're to blame, or it's their fault, or that uh, the other person thinks it's their fault. So then within a second or so, the brain's really fast, B then starts getting defensive and starts attacking A for having this issue at all or being upset about this or it's not really that big a deal. All this squid black ink is just sort of ejected in the water that clouds everything and makes it really murky. The alternative would be for B to have a lot of autonomy inside themselves so that now A is upset about something, okay, and B doesn't ha- can remind themselves, it's not necessarily my fault. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking on board the blame that's mixed in with a lot of other things you're saying here, A. On the other hand, I care about you, A. I recognize also that it's enlightened self-interest on my side of the street to be at peace with you and to respond appropriately to your needs and kind of disappear your grievances with me to the extent possible, line by line, one by one, to clear the space here. Uh, so based on all that, then I will autonomously respond to what's going on with you in a way that I think is skillful without being burdened by, without taking on the ballast of uh, believing that I actually did something bad here. It's really funny to realize that if people were more able to flip a switch inside their own minds Mm -hmm. and put up a shield almost so that now they're living inside a blame-free zone, actually people would be more caring larger-hearted, more uh, giving and generous toward other people. Mm. Because they wouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater of refusing to take on the accusation from the other person. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great idea to conclude this episode focused on me and we on, because it makes an allusion to something that I think is really kind of running under this whole thing, Mm. which is that fundamentally it's about healthy balance. Mm. There is an unhealthy version of almost all of these things that exists out there. You know, there is the blame-free zone, which is great, but there's also the person who you can never break through to with your reasonable critiques because they imagine that they're in a blame-free zone when really they need to take on some blame (laughs) at some point, you know? So it's, it's difficult. All of these conversations are very nuanced. And fundamentally, what's going to kind of stick with me from this is what you really said at the very beginning, which is it's about, do you feel like you have choice? Do you feel like you are capable of expressing what you want to express inside yourself, or do you feel repressed in some way? And that's kind of what this all comes back to. Are you free to step in? Mm -hmm. Are you free to step out? Absolutely. And that idea that maintaining the freedom to step out actually helps you come closer to other people. So today, we covered a lot of material related to intimacy and autonomy. We began by describing these two terms, and you gave a few examples of how retaining our autonomy allows us to be more intimate, or alternatively, how joining with others can allow us to sometimes become more healthily autonomous. 
We covered individual variation in intimacy and autonomy. I raised a sort of bit of a devil's advocate question about, well, wait, how can you determine the difference between natural healthy variation and problematic differences between people, understanding that that natural healthy variation, of course, exists? And that's when you mentioned the point about understanding agency. Are you agent in the situation? Do you have freedom of choice? And I think that's a great note to remember. You mentioned some ways in which nature and nurture can both affect individual temperament and therefore can affect ease of stepping in versus stepping out. And then we spent some time at the end discussing a couple of different ways that you can increase comfort with autonomy if you're somebody who struggles with that. So next week, we're going to continue the strength of intimacy by exploring empathy. Particularly, we're going to look at how to tune into the feelings of others and deepen our intimacy with them without becoming flooded or overwhelmed so we can still retain our individual autonomy. So until then, thanks for listening.